0: All right, if you have your Bibles with me, turn to the book of Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5 is where we're camping out this morning, and uh, if you have been journeying with us over the course of this summer, we have been going through our statement of faith and uh, looking at how the statement of faith uh, summarizes uh, key doctrines, various doctrines in the Scripture. Uh, as we seek to be a people who confess and believe uh, the whole counsel of God's Word. And this morning, um, again, if you've been following with us, uh, we're looking at uh, chapter 25 of the confession, um, but more importantly than that, we are looking at Ephesians chapter 5, and we're going to Specifically, look at verses twenty two to twenty three and so this morning we are discussing marriage marriage as uh the bible presents it uh to us and um and so uh, again, if you've been following in the confession the 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 part of our confession I kind of want to hone in on that I think um ephesians five captures well is just a section out of paragraph three of chapter 25 of the confession where it says it's lawful for all sorts of people to marry who are able with judgment to give their consent, yet, and this is key, it is the duty of Christians to marry in the Lord. It is the duty of Christians to marry in the Lord. And I want us to, this morning, explore what it is that that means. And And I think for us, uh, the passage of Scripture that that's chiefly grounded in, perhaps is Ephesians chapter 5, verses 22 to 23. And so the apostle, and I'm going to read this, and then I'll pray, and then we'll, I'm going to give a little bit of background to um, the book of Ephesians, and then we'll work through this passage together. But starting with verse 22, the Apostle Paul shifts um, uh, from uh, really working through the impl- well. he's working through in chapter 4 the implications of living in light of the finished work of Christ Jesus. And he shifts specifically to how uh, husbands and wives should live in light of the finished work of Christ. And so, starting with verse 22, Paul Under the inspiration of the Spirit, he says, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Verse 25, Husbands. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we're members of his body. Verse 31. Therefore, right, in light of all that, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. God, we thank you for your word, God. Once again, we have it here. Help us to love it and cherish it as it is a word from you. God, you've spoken these words. They're forever relevant. They're enduring. They're binding, God. They're lovely. They're beautiful. And God, they show us not only what it means to be reminded through marriage of the gospel, but it shows us, Lord, how life is best lived. And so help us to see that this morning. And we give you all the praise and all the honor and all the glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, Well Clark sent me this quote uh, that I thought I'd read it to you guys. Just it's Charles Spurgeon on this passage of Scripture. I thought it would be a good way to frame our sermon this morning. And Spurgeon says this says According to the teaching of the apostle The husband is the head of the wife. Women, don't you try to be the head, but you be the neck, then you can turn the head whichever way you like. That's Charles Spurgeon for you. Um, And uh, much of what we're going to talk about this morning really is this idea of headship, uh, in submission or headship and helper. And I'm going to use helper and in and, and submission kind of interchangeably this morning. But if you're familiar with the book of Ephesians at all, uh, you know that the Apostle Paul, really in chapters one to three, he's remind, reminding this church, uh, the church of Ephesus here, where he commissioned uh, young Timothy to pastor, young Timothy being his protege, he really, in chapters one to three, he just revels in the glories of the gospel. He's, he's reminding the Ephesian church why it is that they are, in fact, a church. And he reminds them that it's it's through the spilled blood of Christ Jesus that makes the bride, his church, clean. And so, uh, so just... Uh, beautiful, glorious reminders uh, in chapters 1 to 3. And then the Apostle Paul, and this is exactly like the Apostle Paul, if you're familiar with his letters, uh, from chapters 4 to the end of the book, which is six chapters long, he, he puts forward a vision, if you will, of how people live in light of this glorious gospel. Uh, and in, it's a very earthy book, uh, it's a book that, that we read, and it touches every sort of relationship that you could think of, uh, and it, it demonstrates, I think, quite well for us uh, that there's, there's no part of our lives in which we compartmentalize um, uh, and, and, and say this is off-limits to the Lordship of Jesus. Right? The Lordship of Christ touches, should touch, absolutely everything. And, uh, and certainly, it should touch an institution that has been established by God in the garden. And so, um, in our particular passage this morning, I'd like to back up, if you were to look at verse 20, because I started at verse 22, but if you look at verse 21, you kind of see the Apostle Paul setting up this section, if you will, for us. He says, Uh, In verse 21, submitting to one another out of reverence, and and that word reverence, and I'll I'll draw our attention to this later in the sermon, it's picked up in verse 33. But he says, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. And and, and In verse 21, the, the reformers say that we serve each other For God's sake—that's that's the direction that the Apostle Paul is kind of pushing us toward. We serve each other for God's sake, and then he goes on to flesh out this idea of what submitting to one another looks like by picking up various relationships where where you see submission. Okay, and, and so if you're taking notes, I just was to even have you jot down a question, and we're going to look at the first few verses here. The question that we need to ask when we approach a passage like this is, what is submission and headship? What is submission? What is headship? All right, Paul says, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church's body and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Here we see perhaps two of the most despised and misapplied words within the marriage covenant. We see the word submission, and we see the word headship here. And both words have become ugly in our society because of the abuses of those words within uh, the church and because of the um, unbelieving culture's failure to see the, the the beauty of them and what they represent, which is namely, they represent, again, as we'll see as we go on this morning, Christ's relationship with his church, right? So, so instead of beauty, when we see a passage like this, we can end up seeing just tyrannical and, and spiritually manipulative men. We see that on, on one hand, right, when we see a passage like this. And then on the other hand, we, we see lazy and passive, timid men that that get discouraged and fatigued when the wind blows against them. Right, for, for women, on the one hand, we see angry, bitter discontentment with who God made them to be. And on the other hand, we see overworked, tired women seeking to fill the gaps of a disengaged husband. Right? H- headship and submission have been used as weapons to manipulate. And again, not just in the unbelieving culture, but also in the context of the local church as well. They've been used as weapons to manipulate, and they've become the object of mocking and the object of ridicule. So it's, it shouldn't be surprising to us that, that upon hearing those words or reading those words, we collectively flinch. But, but as Christians, we, we should want to, and I, I've mentioned this before, we should want to call what's righteous absolutely righteous, right? We, we should want to unashamedly and without qualification affirm the beauty of headship and the beauty of submission as the Scriptures speak to them, because when they are properly uh, manifested in marriage, they, they speak to the glories of the gospel. Now, w- w- one of the things, that at least uh, that our minds should go to when we see a passage like this, is we, we need to know, as God's church, that, that headship and submission, they're, they're fixed, they're good, right? they're um, and, and, and even grounded... In the created order of things, we we see in the very book of Genesis, the woman Eve, we see her described as Adam's helper. See that in Genesis chapter 2, verse 20. It says this, The man, speaking of Adam, gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field, but for Adam there was not found a helper fit for him. Last year I preached, for those of you that were here, I preached on this passage of Scripture, and I spent a lot more time on this word than I'm going to today, but I noted last year that the Hebrew word here used for the word helper as it relates to Eve is the same Hebrew word used to describe God as the helper of his people. For the woman to be a helper is to image God, it is to image an attribute uh, of our Lord. Now, we also see the Apostle Paul ground uh, headship and submission, or headship and helper, if you will, in the created order when he's dealing with the dysfunction at the Church of Corinth as, it re- as it's related to this issue. And, and you don't have to turn there. I'll just read it to you, but you can jot it down to perhaps look at later. But First Corinthians chapter 11 verses eight to nine. Paul says, for man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. Paul here is referencing how God created his world to function. He's not talking about there not being equality between man and woman. That's not what we should look at and walk away with here. What Paul's actually doing is elevating the position of both men and women by reminding them of how God created them to be, head and helper. Right? Yet w- w- what we see and what we feel is a tension. What we see and what we feel is, is a conflict surrounding this aspect of marriage, and, and, and that's nothing new. We, again, we shouldn't be surprised by something like that. We see God say this in Genesis chapter 3, verse 16, at least the second part of verse 16, he says to Eve, I will surely multiply your pain in bearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. Right, God looking at Eve after the fall, he says, your, your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. Headship and submission, headship and helper, it's, it's not a result of the fall. The, the conflict and the tension surrounding headship and submission, surrounding headship and helper, and, and all of its abuses is a result of the fall. Right? Sin came into the world and has since sought to sabotage what's good and what's beautiful. God made us male and female to, to complement one another, to fit together according to the assignments that he's given us. And in our submitting to God on this issue, we in turn have a blessed marriage and we project a a, a true image of Christ's relationship with his bride, with his church. And, and that's what the Apostle Paul is speaking to in our passage. He's helping us to see what a marriage submitted to the Lordship of Jesus Christ looks like, right? Think about it this way, this this great covenant that God has made with us, this great covenant that God has secured for us in Christ Jesus, this great covenant that is being kept by his Spirit is to be evidenced by the covenant of marriage, right? This covenant that God made with us, secured in Christ and is keeping by his Spirit is to be evidenced in the covenant of marriage, All right, so, so in light of its significance, how, how should we define submission? How should we define headship? Let's, let's start with headship. Thankfully, we get a sense of, of both of the words right in our very passage. Look with me at verses 25. It dropped down onto verse 30 here. Paul's speaking to the husbands. He says, husbands, And cherishes it just as Christ does the church because we're members of his body. Now, notice the phrase, gave himself up for her, as it relates to Jesus here. Gave himself up for her. I don't want to rush past that. And we could spend an entire sermon just going word by word in this passage. But I don't want us to rush past the significance of that phrase, gave himself up. Up for her. Christ Jesus gave himself up for his bride. He gave himself up for the church. And we've, we've looked at this passage here that I want to read you here in just a second for the last couple of weeks, but Jesus in his humanity, and the reason why I want to read it again, even though we've read it again the last three weeks, the reason why I want us to read it again is because we see Jesus in his humanity redemptively give himself up for his bride, for his church, right? Philippians chapter 2. You guys know this passage, verses 5 to 8. We see the apostle Paul commend to the Philippian church. He says, have this mind among yourselves, right? Adopt the mindset of Christ Jesus. And he says that we're in possession of it. He says, which is yours? We're not trying to get possession of it. Because of the glorious gospel and all that Christ Jesus has accomplished for us, we are in possession of this mindset, just often in rebellion of this mindset. Now, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by, be- by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Right? He's propping up Christ not just as our Savior. He's propping up Christ as the example in which we should emulate. Right? Christ Jesus... Subjected himself, which, by the way, is submission, and, and we'll see that more in just a minute. But Christ subjected himself to humiliation through him truly becoming a man, right? Not, not clinging to his rights, right? He was born of lowly estate. He became obedient in his humanity. He died like a criminal in his humanity, and he did this. Because he is the head of his wife. He is the head of his bride, which is the church, right? And, and he's now in this forever standing, thank God he is, as the representative of the family. Right? The reason why we can come each Lord's Day and we can have a, a time in our service where we confess our sins and not despair and see the depths of hell looming below us is because Jesus is the representative of our family. That's how we do something like that and not fall into despair. We can confess sin knowing that there's safety and security, not in in, 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 in embracing our sin, right? We don't sin so that grace may abound, but we confess our sin and we repent of our sin in security knowing that we're not standing on our own two feet in our own righteousness. We're standing represented by the head of the family who is Christ Jesus. All right, this is what headship is. All right, Christ took responsibility even for that which he didn't have to. And he paid the debt for our lies. He paid the debt for our slothfulness, our adulteries, our sinful anger, our failure to keep our word, our endless pursuit of fleeting pleasure. Christ took responsibility for that as if he himself had engaged with it. 2 Corinthians 5.21, he became sin who knew no sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. And he, in exchange, washed us. He washed his bride pure. And we're accepted based on on the person and the merits of our husband. This, this is what headship is. Christ wed himself to us, though we rejected him. He wed himself to us and is committed to us despite our unfaithfulness, and he doesn't complain about it. Moses, who is, according to the Scripture, the most humble man, Complain to God about the Israelites that he represented. Did I give birth to these people? But Christ representing us doesn't complain about it. And he certainly doesn't divorce us. We're secured in our husband. We're secure in Christ. So what of course, what of course do we see here? We see that headship is sacrificial. We see that headship is concerned about the welfare of others, even at great cost. All right, we see that headship isn't focused on selfish gain. We see that headship doesn't come home after a long day's work and expect not to be bothered by the family. All right, headship is this moment-by-moment moment giving up yourself. All right, Christ gave himself up for his bride. So men, we're to give ourselves up for our wives, for our children. And you've heard me say this before, but headship, it isn't something that you can choose to be or not to be. Men, you don't have that authority. God has not granted you the authority to pick. Just as we saw last week that governing authorities are accountable to God, so are we as husbands accountable to God. Our headship is vested authority. We're stewards of the authority that God has granted to us. We don't have absolute authority. God has entrusted every husband with authority and will give an account for the quality of our headship. We are the representatives of our home for better or for worse. We set the spiritual temperature of our homes for better or worse. Or for worse And women, if your husband is not doing this, it is not your job to compensate. It's his job to repent and get to work. That, that's why I found, even in my own counseling, truly, nine out of 10 times, it's the husband that needs to be blamed for the degradation of the home. Nine times out of 10, this isn't to excuse sinful behaviors on part of the wife but it seems that homes are plagued chiefly by lazy, apathetic men who refuse to stand in the gap for their families. So men, a few questions here for us to collectively evaluate the quality of our headship. I'll give some questions to the wives in a moment. But are you actively repenting of sin and resting in Christ? Is that you? Is that a habit in your life? Do you regularly bring your family before the Lord? Is Sunday public worship a priority in your house, or do other things take priority? Are you easily discouraged? It's a big one. I know a lot of discouraged men. Is your wife flourishing in the Lord or floundering? Are your children familiar with the rhythms of worship in the home and on the Lord's Day? Do you find yourself delighting in your wife or complaining about the state of your marriage and life? Do you look at your children as image bearers entrusted to you to raise and to know and fear the Lord or do you find yourself hiding from them and wishing they weren't around? Have you grown embittered and do you feel entitled to be away from your wife and kids? Are you humbly leading your wife or are you being led by her? The the scripture is clear. It's abundantly clear for us. We're to be men that fear God. We're to be men uh, that, that have the love of God shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Spirit of God. We're to be men of courage. We're to be men with gospel boldness. We're to be men of consistency. We're to have thick skin and warm hearts. All right, we're by God's grace building our homes for eternity, and that calling is hard. It's the hardest thing that we'll ever do. But by God's grace and strength, we can do it. The scriptures say that we can do it. Headship is an outworking of love. We see that word love right in our Ephesians 5 passage. Love of God and then love for our bride. And it's a redemptive love. It's a a, a sacrificial love. It's the type of love that Paul... Uh, that, as Paul says in verses 26 and 27, is sanctifying, it's a sanctifying love, it's a purifying love, it's one that makes one holy, makes one spotless. Now, some of you men may be sitting here, and quite frankly and bluntly, you've married poorly, and and life for you has been hard. There's encouragement for you here as well. Think of, of Hosea and Gomer. Read the book of Hosea and think about the symbolism of that book. Think about how unlovely we are on our own two feet apart from Christ who is our head. We we are truly the bride that should make any groom turn away and run. Yet Christ wedded himself to us. It was a part of the joy set before him that motivated him to endure the cross, Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2. I found this comment from a particular theologian as I studied this this week and, and, and found that it could be comforting to the, to the brother who married a difficult or rebellious wife. He said, to, this, the theologian says this, Many men pretend the sins of their wives excuse their own hardness and cruelty. Yet the apostle tells us to pay attention to what manner of bride Christ got when he joined her to himself, and how he not only does not loathe all her filth and uncleanness, but he never ceases to wipe the filth and uncleanness away with his cleanness until he has wholly purged it. Men, is your love of a cleansing quality... Is your love of a cleansing quality? How do you represent your home before the Lord? We we have to, just upon reflecting on this, we have to flee to Christ. As men, we've got to flee to Christ on this matter because it's impossible for us to honor Him in our marriage and in our parenting apart from Him working by His Spirit in us, which is why Paul... I think even a chapter later, Ephesians chapter 6 verse 10 says, Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Some of your translations say in the strength of His power. Men that are daily dependent upon the Lord do headship right. They just do. When it's done wrong, it's because there's a worship disorder. When it's done wrong, it's because there's a worship disorder. Now, what of submission? What of submission? Now, the, the particular Greek word uh, is, is subject here, and it's used at least 40 times in the New Testament. Okay, that's the word behind those, the verses in 22 to verse 24. Wives submit or subject, and the, the word there is actually not here, but it's implied based on verse 21. It, it, the, if you were reading it in the original language, it would say wives to your own husbands. As to the Lord. And then it goes on, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church's body and is himself its Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands or subject themselves to everything to their husbands and everything to their husbands. Now, the first thing we need to see as it relates to submission or subjection is it's an act of worship to the Lord. That's what we see here as unto the Lord. Right? The, the focal point of submission is not actually the husband. It's not actually the husband. That would be idolatry. Right? That, that's behind all sorts of unhealthy, codependent relationships. It makes the husband the Savior instead of Christ. Right? The focal point of submission is the Lord. That should be the concern of the wife. That should be the, the main concern. Uh, the main thing the wife sees as it relates to subjection, as it relates to submission, as, is worship as unto the Lord. All right? And the Lord, and the beauty of that is that the Lord is a good head despite the, the type of head your husband is. All right? And I mentioned this a moment ago, but we see Christ, and I'm going to go back here, well, we see Christ in his humanity Subject himself, or rather submit himself to the will of the Father. We see that certainly in Philippians chapter 2 in his humiliation, but we get glimpses of this elsewhere. For instance, the Garden of Gethsemane. I'd encourage you to jot this down, look at it later. But the Garden of Gethsemane, prior to his crucifixion in Matthew chapter 26, verses 38 and 39, we see Jesus praying the, the infamous prayer here says, Then he, speaking of Jesus, said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Certainly, there's some wives that pray this as it relates to their husband. Let this cup pass from me, Lord. But it's important here to, to know that, one, we, we see Christ here subjecting himself to the will of the Father. We see, as a side note, we see him doing this in his humanity. We don't, this isn't happening in his deity. There's not two wills of, of God uh, eternally. But Christ, who's truly man, subjected, submitted himself to the will of God. All right? So he, here he, uh, he speaks first to some of his disciples. And in this passage we see him express anguish for what's to come which is the, the cup of God's fierce wrath towards sin. And then he says, My soul is very sorrowful even to death. And then Christ prays to the Father, and, and, and we see, again, in his humanity, how his love of the Father and how his sorrow shape his prayers to the Lord when he says, If it's possible, let this cup pass from me nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Christ, in his humanity, subjected himself, submitted himself to the will of the Father, and his submission here played a key role in him redeeming a people to himself, just as him being the head played a key role in him redeeming people to himself. And in our Ephesians passage, we see Paul speaks to wives and instructs them by using this very word to model this form of submission. To submit is to model Christ in his humanity. And as I mentioned earlier, to be a helper, which we see again in the created order in Genesis chapter 2, is to model an attribute of God who is the helper of his people. And then certainly we see Paul explicitly give cues to the wife to look to the church for how she submits to her husband. The head of the church is Christ. And as a church, we submit to Christ by the way we live in accountability and in submission to the elders of the church. And as we as as a church seek to be biblical and even how we worship and how we function, Paul says, look to how the church submits to Christ. This is how you submit to your husband as unto the Lord, right? And certainly what he has in view is the way that a church should function, not sadly the ways that churches often function. Now, how can we put flesh and blood on this as it relates to submission? What is the what is this theological framework, if you will, for submission? What does this look like for women in the church? First... Like we saw last week as it related to the government, the headship of a man, again, is a vested authority given to them by God. Therefore, they're accountable to God, and they need to have that in mind, and it's good for the wife to remember that. Secondly, wives are not to submit in matters of sin. If, you, if your husband is asking you to do something that's forbidden in Scripture, say, not gather with the church regularly or engage in shady financial dealings or to engage in some sort of sexual perversion, right, then you have an obligation to submit to your ultimate head by respectfully disobeying uh, uh, and defying what your husband's asking you to do. But on other matters, flesh and blood on submission, you should respect your husband and defer to him as the ultimate decision maker in your home, as you give him good, solid, well tempered counsel, right, you should reverence your husband, is what the scripture says. And interestingly, in this passage, we see we see that word in two places. We see it uh, in verse twenty one, and we see it in verse thirty three. Look at verse thirty three just quickly. Paul says let each one of you speaking to the husband love his wife as himself. And then he turns to the wife and says, let the wife see that she respects her husband. Then if you were to go earlier to chapter five and look particularly at verse 21, again, I read this right at the beginning of the sermon, it says, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. That that word respect and reverence has the same root word in in the original language. Your submission to your husband in other words, should flow from your reverence for Christ. And your reverence for Christ should drive your respect or your reverence for your husband. That's what submission looks like. Now, a few questions here for the women of our church, just as I gave the husbands a few questions. first question is this. What type of home does your husband step into when he comes home from work? Do you effort to make it warm and hospitable toward him and other people? Secondly, a defining characteristic of a woman is one that gives life. Right? That's, a, that's a function of a woman. Are you life-giving with your speech, or are you domineering, rude, and slanderous? Third, do you let your kids in on disagreements between you and your husband, either intentionally to get them on your side, Or unintentionally, because you lack control over your tongue and have a sort of codependent relationship with them? Four, do you put your husband in difficult situations with others by your lack of restraint? Five, do you jump at the opportunity to be the mouthpiece of the home? Six, do you overshare information about yourself, your husband, or children on things like social media? Just as I gave a list for husbands for us to talk through, that would be great areas of discussion, we need to be asking uh, these questions as it relates to wives, and the the husband and wife relationship as well. One of my favorite passages as as it relates to that of an excellent wife is found in Proverbs chapter 31. And I'd encourage you to flip over to that quickly and look at verses 10 to 31 with me. Solomon, a wise man, says, An excellent wife, who can find? She's far more precious than jewels. The heart of her husband trusts in her, and he will have no lack of gain. She does him good and not harm all the days of her life. She seeks wool and flax and works with willing hands. She's like the ships of the merchant, and she brings her food from afar. She rises while it's yet night and provides food for her household and portions for her maidens. She considers a field and buys it. With the fruit of her hands, she plants a vineyard. She dresses herself with strength and makes her arms strong. She perceives that her merchandise is profitable. Her lamp does not go out at night. She puts her hands to the uh, staff and her hands hold the spindle. She opens her hand to the poor and reaches out her hands to the needy. She's not afraid of snow for her household, for all her household are clothed in scarlet. She makes bed coverings for herself. Her clothing is fine linen and purple. Her husband is known in the gates where he sits among the elders of the land. She makes linen garments and sells them. She delivers sashes to the merchants. Strength and dignity are her clothing, and she laughs. At the time to come, what resilience! She opens her mouth with wisdom, and the teaching of kindness is on her tongue. She looks well to the ways of her household and does not eat the bread of idleness. Her children rise up and call her blessed, her husband also, and he praises her. Many women have done excellently, but you surpass them all. All right, just what the husband says. Charm is deceitful and beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. Give her of the fruit of her hands and let her works praise her in the gates. That is what being a helper looks like. That's what submission looks like. It's God's focus. It's God-focused. It's industrious. There's strength here, there's beauty here, there's productivity here, there's praise here, there's joy here, there's resilience here, there's not a, a temperament that's easily discouraged here. A woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. That's not cheap. That's not cheap. That's not meaningless work. Right? This is eternally significant work, and it's God's standard for womanhood. And then lastly, verses 31 to 33, we see or should see that marriage preaches the gospel. And so when men have a proper perspective and live in light of, the, 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 of what it means to be a head, head of the home, representative of the home, and when women with a, with a heart full of love for God understand what submission does and doesn't look like, we see marriage preached. The gospel. Therefore, verse 31, In light of this, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the church see that she respects her husband. Paul, here he grounds marriage just as he does the roles. He grounds it in created order by quoting Genesis 2.24. All right, so we have this covenant between a man and a woman, one in which the man is to leave his father and mother and hold fast, this is what it says in the ESV, to his wife. Right, that, that phrase, hold fast, I think, is, is another function, if you will, of, of headship, it seems. And, and for some of you, your translations may say, instead of the, word, the phrase, hold fast, you may see to be joined. Right, some of you know it as the word cleave. Right? Leave and cleave, which is how it's translated in the Hebrew in Genesis. That phrase, though, hold fast, it, it reminds me of our John 10 passage that we went through a few weeks ago when we talked about how uh, we saw that, that uh, Christ say that He and the Father hold us in their hand. Right? If you remember, right, Christ is saying in that John 10 passage, if you're wed to Him you are secured to Him. If you're wed to Him, you are secured to Him. Right? It's an unbreakable bond that nobody can sabotage. And in this passage, Paul evokes, I think, that sort of imagery as it relates to our marriage. Right? Our marriage should have that hold fast sort of permanence. Right? That's leaving and cleaving. Our marriage should be tamper-proof. And, and those of us who've been married for longer than ten minutes, we know uh, of the dangers to our union with each other. Right? The world, the flesh, our own flesh, our enemy, the devil. And the remedy for this is to model in our marriage Christ's marriage to us. And that's precisely where Paul makes the connection when he connects our one flesh union to the word mystery here. Our marriage is an earthly picture of Christ's relationship with His church. So while our marriage isn't a sacrament like baptism or the Lord's Supper, it is a picture that should remind us of Christ and should remind us of His glorious gospel. Our marriage should model that everlasting union of Jesus and His bride. That that means that the way you love your spouse will communicate practically what you believe to be true about Christ and His church. Our marriage really does preach the gospel. Marriage preaches the gospel when a husband sins against his wife and he confesses and repents and she forgives. Marriage preaches the gospel when a husband identifies himself with a Savior by unselfishly serving his wife and promoting her spiritual well-being. Marriage preaches the gospel when a wife lovingly submits to her husband as unto the Lord. Marriage preaches the gospel when you're in the heat of conflict and you stop and pray for humility and wisdom and discernment. Marriage preaches the gospel when your spouse is unlovable, yet you remember your promise, your covenant to stay put. Your marriage preaches the gospel. And a husband and wife who who have a high view of Christ and his church, and this is critical, a husband and wife who have a high view of Christ and a high view of his church, by nature, have a high view of marriage. What flows from a high view of Christ's church, what flows from a high view of Christ, is a high view of marriage. And where this is the case, there's spiritual flourishing. There's not ease of life necessarily, but there's spiritual flourishing. So a few takeaways for us, and then I'll close us in prayer. The first is this. We need to recapture biblical manhood and womanhood in delight in God's specific assignments for men and women. As a church, we need to recapture biblical manhood and womanhood in delight in God's specific assignments for men and women. Secondly, the roles of headship and helper were instituted by God before the fall. The abuse and disdain of them is a result of the fall. Third, men that are daily dependent upon the Lord and are accountable in the local church do headship right. Men that are daily dependent upon the Lord and are accountable in the local church do headship right. Fourth, women that are daily dependent upon the Lord and are accountable in the local church, do submission right. And then fifth, our marriage preaches what we believe to be true about the gospel. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. God, we thank you again for your word. God, we admit, we confess, Lord, that this is a task that on our own two feet we cannot labor in. But Lord, we are not on our own two feet. We are clothed in the righteousness of Christ. And your Holy Spirit dwells in us. And so we can joyfully submit to your design for our lives. And in a result of that, God, will be us declaring the gospel as ambassadors of Christ. To each other and to an unbelieving world. And so, Lord, be the Lord over our lives, over our marriages. Help us to repent where we need to repent. And help us to flourish through the means that you've provided for us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.